Uh, thank you, and also want to thank you for taking the interest in this uh, rather unusual topic, 1907, Pyongyang uh, revival, great revival. So I want to speak perhaps the next uh, 35, 40 minutes, uh, and then maybe open it up for some discussion. You might have some questions. Uh, Pyongyang revival, uh, by far, uh, is considered to be at least by those who have observed it in person and who have left the records, uh, consider this revival to be the greatest revival in terms of spiritual depth and also its impact uh, since the Pentecost. And I believe that's quite, an, quite a statement because we get to also compare the revival by Jonathan Edwards or the, or the uh, Wales revival in 1904. I believe, or 06, around that time. And so um, I have uh, seen many places where actually it said that this revival, if we were to compare this to some, something like an earthquake uh, magnitude, is bigger or stronger than any other revival we have uh, read in record. So having, having said that, I want you to judge for yourself whether this really merits that kind of description. Uh, I want to begin by sketching the historical background of the middle and the late 19th century in East Asia. And, and by, saying, by saying so, we can also see that revival is uh, not just something that we do or we long for, but that God does use all these um, issues and, 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 the, and the tumultuous times uh, as part of uh, bringing in revival. So uh, let me begin. Oh, it's frozen. Um, could you just, sometimes it does that, yeah. Um, so if you look at this map, uh, in the 19th century, Asia, uh, there, was a lot of there was a lot of colonial conflict. And you can see um, um, China was struggling very much, the Qing dynasty in its last leg almost, uh, trying to uh, keep out foreign powers, and uh, Korea, there in, in blue, uh, s always considered uh, Qing, Qing uh, dynasty or the empire, the Qing empire, as uh, her parent um, a guardian. And so when Qing dynasty was shaky, Korea was extremely shaky. And, uh, so we, we should keep that in mind, and uh, let's move to the next picture. And uh, up, up close, you can see uh, there was uh, British interest, uh, French interest, German, Russian interest. But uh, most immediately here to the right was Japan, always lurking over Korea, always wanting to annex Korea. Uh, but Korea uh, ha had made this uh, relationship with Chinese to receive her protection. But as I said, when China was being sh shaken up, Korea had, had really no place to go. And there was also Russians from the top also interested, and then Americans as well. Yeah. And that was the picture of the 19th century. And you can see the nation from 1894 to 1910, for about 15 years, literally the nation breaking apart and, see, uh, and, and, and being an annexed by Japan. So first, in 1894 to 95. There was Sino-Japanese War. That's a uh, war between the Qing Dynasty and Japan. 
but here's an interesting um, comment. The major battleground of these two nations, guess where? Was in Korea and guess where? Pyongyang. Pyongyang was the battleground that these two nations picked to fight uh, over control over Korea. And so when I read some records of uh, what happened, uh, uh, li literally there were bodies and bodies piled up and a strong stench of uh, uh, bodies being rotten. And these are not necessarily the bodies of the soldiers, but the innocent uh, civilians. Now here, um, Japan wins uh, and China loses. And uh, this becomes a, a, a shock to a lot of Koreans who thought that China could never go down. Uh, here was Japan. Uh, in 1850, uh, there was Meiji um, Reformation. And so through that, they quickly acquired a lot of foreign powers and, and civili Western civilization. And with their better technology, they were able to beat China. And so a lot of Koreans who looked to China for not only protection but also religion, Confucianism, Buddhism, and so forth, realizing now that China did not have the answer for future. And then in 1895, in broad daylight, uh, Japanese uh, soldiers came, uh, marched into Korean uh, king's palace, and assassinated the queen. Uh, very uh, quickly, everything took place very, very quickly, assassinated the queen, who was pro-Chinese at the time, and, um, and then burned her, burned her body, and then buried her under a tree. Now, all this uh, would not have been uh, revealed as closely or as openly to the public, except for the fact that there was a Russian uh, embassy, about three-story embassy that was right behind the palace, and there were some Russian people who actually saw this and came forward as witness. Uh, ten years later, Japan wages a war against Russia, and Japan wins. So the stage is now set for Japan to completely take control over uh, Korea. So uh, in 1910, there is the final annexation by Japan. Korea, as a nation, as, as kingdom, ceases to exist by 1910. Uh, and the Japanese uh, ca came into country, forced Koreans to adopt uh, the Japanese way of life, education, language, even changing last names to Japanese. Uh, and I want you to see that the uh, Great Pyongyang Revival took place in between these very tumultuous events, 1907. And I believe it is not by coincidence that that year was picked. In fact, that was a very divine year. Because in 1905, King Gojong, a Korean king, was forced to step down, and, hi and his son took over. So from 1905 to 1910, systematic annexation was taking place. And the revival took place right in the middle of that annexation attempt. Now, um, I also want to uh, sketch just a little background for you uh, in that uh, because China was really uh, 
being battered by British. You are aware of the Opium War, the first and the second Opium War, right? And that's how Hong Kong was uh, 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 delivered to the British uh, as a way of uh, treaty. You are looking at me as though this is news to you, but it's not news to you, right? You, you have heard, heard about the Opium War, yeah. And so Korea was looking at what China was doing, and China was really having so much difficulty with Western powers. So, um, so there was, for some time, around 1860, for about 10, 15 years, there was a very strict policy called closed policy. Uh, the king uh, uh, and the king's father did not allow uh, foreigners to come into Korea or Koreans to go outside Korea and make contacts with foreigners. Because if you did that, then look at what happened to China. This is what might happen to us. So during this time, around 1870, uh, there was a, uh, a fellow, a Scottish fellow by the name of John Ross. He had heard that his fellow man, uh, Robert Thomas, had come to Pyongyang and he was stabbed to death. He was trying to share the gospel. In, that was in 1866. So about uh, roughly about 10 years later, uh, he, said, he says, well, I'm going to give a try, and I want to really get into Korea somehow. But he couldn't get in. As I said, the, the country was closed. So uh, he was looking for Koreans brave enough to, uh, uh, to, to meet him in China and teach him Korean language. Uh, of course, uh, uh, no Koreans were willing to do that because they would be risking their lives uh, if the king found out, uh, then they would uh, be in big trouble. Except uh, there was one young man by the name of uh, Lee Hung-jun. Uh, he, because he f his boat got flipped over, uh, he was a, he was a, a, a man trading uh, ginseng. You know what ginseng is? Uh, trading from Korea to China. And he, he had lots of ginseng on his boat, but the boat got flipped when when they crossed the river between Korea and China. And so he, he had no means to survive anymore, and so he had no choice but to become a language tutor of John Ross. And so together, they start uh, translating the Bible. Uh, first, uh, the Gospel of Mark, I'm sorry, Gospel of Luke, and then Gospel of John. And this was uh, uh, finished in um, 1882. All this actually in the Chinese side, not the Korean side. And then this man, by the name of So Sang-nyun, uh, he was also a Jinzen trader uh, who almost died from illness. But John Ross and his uh, brother-in-law, John McIntyre, both Scottish missionaries, really took care of him, and uh, so he was able to survive uh, from this grave illness. And then because he was so touched by their care and love, he became a Christian. And this gentleman brought the Gospel of Luke, crossed the river into Korea, and started sharing this Gospel uh, to his uh, village where his uncle lived in, in what is today North Korea, uh, just south of uh, Pyongyang. And I believe there were about 80 or so families in that village. Uh, almost every one of them all became believers. And so, so here, called Sore Church, because it's, the village is called Sore, uh, became the very first church planted 
uh, in Korea. And this is interesting. I want you to see this because next picture, 1885, the year later, we have the formal entrance of two American missionaries to Korea. So here we have uh, a very unusual situation in Korea where you have the Bible that's already, at least in part, translated outside Korea. And then uh, a missionary disciples, uh, uh, Koreans, evangelists, and then they come inside, uh, very bold, very brave, and then plant the, the church already. And now uh, these missionaries come in. Uh, when you look at the order, uh, usually it's not quite like that, right? Usually a missionary comes in, learns the language, uh, uh, translates the Bible, and then with that Bible now plants the church. But by the time Underwood and Appenzeller, Appenzeller is a Methodist uh, missionary and Underwood Presbyterian, by the time they came in, they were surprised to hear that there was already a Christian church uh, about uh, 10 days away by, fort, uh, by, by horse uh, from, from Seoul, Korea. So anyway, this, this is sort of uh, um, the background. And just one more piece to, to put everything together now is that we need to understand the 19th century evangelical revivalism that impacted uh, uh, Pyongyang revival. Uh, we all know D.L. Moody. He had such an impact, not just in... America, but in Canada as well. Now his uh, uh, slogan was ruined by sin, ruined by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And he preached this message everywhere, and especially when his work was tied with stu student volunteer movement. You have heard about this, right? Uh, it became a very powerful, powerful uh, combination in mobilizing young people for world missions uh, at the turn of the 19th century. So they were able to recruit 2,100 young men and women who were willing to go anywhere around the world. And their motto was the evangelization of the world in this generation. So um, some of the uh, key players at the time, A.T. Pearson, A.J. Gordon. You know, do you know A.B. Simpson? Some of you may know the founder, founder of uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, denomination, uh, John R. Mott, um, very significant, very important name in uh, mission mobilization, uh, the one who uh, put together the 1910 Edinburgh World Missionary Conference. Anyway, these, are, these were the guys that were right in the middle of the student volunteer movement. And of course, uh, in England, we've had, there was Keswick Convention, the Higher Life Movement, and the Welsh Revival. So um, we should remember that around that time, 1870, 1880, 1890, 18, uh, 1900, around that time, in North America, spiritually speaking, lots of power. And missionaries were going out everywhere, to Africa, to Asia, to India, everywhere. So, and, and this is mostly the evangelical uh, blend of um, uh, missionaries that were going out. And um, um, if I had time, I would introduce uh, some missionaries that went out from Toronto to, um, to uh, Korea uh, around that time. But I will introduce this one person by the name of uh, Robert Hardy, graduate of Toronto Medical School, uh, U of T Medical School, and also um, um, 
I believe he was also a uh, ordained uh, a minister. And uh, he was uh, given a post uh, in Wonsan, which is uh, today in North Korea on the, on the East Coast. Uh, he's been, he was, having been in Korea for, for over 10 years, uh, one, uh, one day he looked at himself and said, uh, I labored a lot, toiled much, but why is it that I have really very little fruit to show in my mission work? Uh, and he was asked by some Scandinavian uh, missionaries to come and speak uh, at their conference. So he, while he was preparing uh, the message, which was mostly found in uh, John chapter 15, uh, the, the Spirit began to convict him and said, look, there's a reason why you, you have very little fruit to show for. Uh, it has to do with your arrogance. You say you're highly educated. You say you're a doctor. And you're, you say you're a Westerner. And then you look down upon Koreans. And with that kind of attitude, Koreans are not going to be impressed with what you have to say. The Spirit was really convicting him. And so he began repenting of his pride and his sin. And he did that with other missionaries. In front of the missionaries, he repented. And uh, this really began. This uh, was, was like the spark that eventually uh, uh, made the, the entire Pyongyang uh, revival possible. Uh, started, all, started with this guy, uh, Robert Hardy. And people noticed that uh, Hardy repented of his sin, of his pride. And amazingly, Hardy became a different person. Before, he was unapproachable, very um, uh, proud, um, and people didn't want to be near him, especially the, the, the local Koreans. But he became soft, became very accommodating, became very collaborative. And so uh, people began uh, working with him again. And so there were a lot of conversions. Uh, 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 that kind of conversions he did not see in, in his first 10 years of ministry. And he was very effective in uh, uh, revival meetings and so forth. And so just this um, uh, a revival meeting that took place in a small town called Wonsan, it began to spread. Now, uh, people were hearing about this, uh, this, uh, this being happening. And uh, in Pyongyang, there was another very important person by the name of Gil Sonju. And... Uh, uh, this is a big name, and if you want to write down just one name, this is one name worth writing down, because I believe uh, that he's, uh, or I, uh, not just I believe, but I, m many Korean church historians consider him to be the father of Korean church. He, um, uh, this man uh, was converted to Christianity at the age of, uh, in his late 20s, 27, 28, something like that. Uh, but before he became a Christian, he was a master in Chinese religion, especially called Taoism. And, I, and also an offshoot of Taoism. So he's one of those masters that you would find in the, in the deep mountains. <laughs> he would go off to pray uh, for, for days on end. Uh, he was married, had a kid, uh, but because he wanted to really 
get into that new sort of spiritual uh, area uh, uh, or, or spiritual realm that uh, he, he told his wife, look, uh, you, won't, you won't see me for now next uh, 20, 30 days because I'll be in the mountain, I'll be praying. Uh, his wife uh, was very cooperative at the beginning, but increasingly she became um, impatient with this husband who was anything but responsible for his family. So the wife says to uh, Kil Sanju, uh, don't you know that uh, we have no more rice? And Kil Sanju, now this is before he became a Christian, he said, oh, you woman, or woman of little faith, and then he closed his eyes, and then he says, I see an image. I see something. Uh, by this time tomorrow, and this was afternoon, so tomorrow afternoon this time, you will see a man carrying a sack of rice and delivering it on our doorstep. The wife could not believe what this guy was saying. Next day, afternoon, exactly that's what happened. A man delivering a sack of rice. Now, I don't know what to make of it or how to explain this, but that goes to show you that uh, uh, he was at least uh, very much uh, excelled in his chosen field of spirituality. Um, so he was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this, uh, this uh, Chinese discipline. But what broke his heart was that one day, a young lady came to him and said, I heard, Master, that, that you are a very different person, that you have this amazing spiritual power. Can I stay with you and learn from you? And he said, uh, why not? Go ahead. Well, what happens when a young man and young woman stay together for a long time? <laughs> it's a dangerous combination, wouldn't you think? And so, Kil Sanju... Uh, realizing that he, he thought that he was in complete control of, over his desires and whatnot, commits adultery. And then he says, whatever I was pursuing is nothing but bankruptcy. So he says, I need to find something different. Uh, it was around this time that his friend gave him some Christian literature to read, and Pilgrim's Progress was one of them. Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which was translated into Korean, something like this, using Korean illustration. And uh, I'm very proud to, to inform you that the person who translated P John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress into Korean language was a guy by the name of uh, James Gale, a graduate of University of Toronto. In 1888, uh, uh, he was touched by Moody's call for world missions. And so he set out. Uh, Toronto YMCA supported him $500 a year. Now, YMCA then is not YMCA today. Okay, uh, Nothing to do with village people, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Some of the older folks know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So James Gale, uh, he was not a graduate of... Um, Divinity School, but he was just his. He was he was his major was in English literature, and God found uh, this servant um, 
uh, his uh, talent. So he started translating some of these significant works. And it was Kil Sun-ju that read this. And for some reason, he was able to find, he, can, he could relate to the story here and said, that's me. And uh, I have this burden on my shoulder. And Christianity is the way. And so he becomes a Christian. Becomes a Christian, and he commits his life to Christ. Uh, he's one of the first seven uh, Presbyterian ministers to be ordained in Korea. Uh, but before he became a, a ordained pastor, he was an elder. And so uh, in the meantime, after he becomes a Christian, he hears about Welsh, Welsh, Welsh revival, but also hears about Wonsan revival. And uh, he and uh, another elder in his church says, well, let's really pray that this revival would also come to our church. So he, Kil Sun-ju, and uh, Park Chirok, two elders, they get together from September of 1906. Uh, the, the revival meetings were scheduled to, for the first two weeks in January, but they were preparing for this revival four months in advance. So these two guys get up at 4.30 in the morning, come to church, and began praying every morning. Now, I need to let you know that uh, for Kil Sun-ju, uh, getting up at 4.30 in the morning was a cinch because in his previous religion, Taoism, he used to get up at 3 in the morning and pray to the spirits. Somebody asked him, why do you get up at 3 in the morning and, and pray? And he said, because some of the evil spirits are tired yeah. and they go to sleep. And at 3 in the morning, I find prayer uh, the best. So for him who's used to getting up at 3, Getting up at 4.30 is, 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 is a cinch. And I told you that he is the father of Korean church. Some of us, we don't like him because, because of him. We have to get up very early in the morning and pray too. <laughs> so he prepares, and then he, he says to his congregation, uh, anyone who wants to join us in prayer, feel free to join us. And so the record shows that... Uh, uh, upwards of 500 people were coming and praying every morning to prepare for these two weeks in uh, uh, revival meetings in, in January. And this is the church, Chang Dehyun Church in Pyongyang. Sadly, today, uh, there is no remain of this church because, as you know, Pyongyang is now the capital of North Korea, and uh, instead of the churches once flourish, flourishing in that area, today we have the idols, statue, statue of uh, Kim Il-sung and his son, Kim Jong-il, all over the place, unfortunately. But uh, this was a church already, a uh, uh, lot of people, 2,000 people, 2,000 member church in Pyongyang. And, and uh, uh, when this picture was taken, Christianity... Uh, went into this uh, Korea no more than 18 years, right? Because from 1885 to 1907, 19 years. Uh, that construction was totally by 100% by Korean, no foreign support. Yeah. And uh, that's to do with uh, a very excellent teaching by a missionary by the name of John Nevius, who was a missionary in China, uh, but uh, he went through so much failure. And uh, when 
missionaries in Korea invited him to come and speak. Uh, he taught them, you should really use this principle. And if I had to do it all over again in China, this is what I would have done. And then he talked about three selves, self-propagation, um, self-support, and self-government. Uh, and so they literally applied that to this church. And so that huge building was totally financed by Koreans. And Kil Sun-ju was the main guy in this church. So prayer meetings, uh, but I, like I said, 1906, they began meeting at 4.30 in the morning from September to December. And then it, the records show that this is even more interesting. They, so the, the actual revival meetings took place from January 2nd to 15, but they had these preparatory meetings from December 26 to 31. So in essence, the whole meeting was three weeks long. And it, when, I re when I read it, the, that preparatory week was much more intense than the two weeks itself. So anyway, uh, the meeting, look at the daily schedule for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I don't know the difference between 9 to 10 a.m. Bible study and then 10 to 12 p.m. prayer and Bible study. Uh, why don't they just say Bible study for three hours? Uh, but they took a break, obviously, and then, and then more Bible study, and then from 3 p.m. till dinner time was evangelism. For two weeks, uh, they would go around the village and get people to bring them to evening rallies. And this went on for two weeks, January 2nd to 15th. Now, about 1,500 people participated in this, and these were all church leaders and pastors gathered from that province, not from this church, from the province, because this was to be a province-wide uh, uh, revival. Uh, t a thousand to twelve hundred. And they walked 16 kilometers, anywhere between 16 to 110 kilometers to get to this church. And they also brought their own sack of rice to cook because there were no fast food chains around. And all came at their own expense and even paid their registration fee. And I find this to be so different and in many ways refreshing because I know like when I go to mission uh, field for visits and so forth. Sometimes I have to supply their, their, their bus fare for them to come for pastor's conference. But here y you pay your own. You bring your own food. Yeah. And in some ways, this, uh, this, this was more effective. And then Pyongyang city residents were permitted for evening meetings only. And the maximum capacity that the church could hold was 1,500. So overflow had to go to missionaries' homes and hold separate meetings. But here's the funny thing. I told you that in the last week of December, the intensity was unbelievable. And yet, starting from January 2nd, when, actually, when, actual, when, when it actually mattered, it was very cold. No fire, no holy fire. So this went on January 2nd, 3rd, 4th, like this, until January uh, 14th. Now, 14th was going to be the second last day of the event. And people were getting very disappointed. We were studying the, the word. 
We were praying. We went out for evangelism. We brought all these people in. Nothing was really happening of significance. Uh, they were um, very, very disappointed. Uh, are we going to really go home like this? We have two more nights left. Well, I have the good news for, here, for you. January the 14th. Pardon my expression. All hell broke loose. Yeah. This was it. Unbelievable uh, things happened. But, but here is an, uh, an, uh, an interesting point. Why, why now? Why at this particular time? And why not before? Well, I, that guy I was, I was telling you about, uh, Kil Sun-ju, he was, uh, it was up for, hi, for him to, to preach. But as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit convicted him and said, do you expect people to repent when you are not repenting? And then he sort of uh, uh, was thinking, what do I need to repent? Uh, what have I done wrong? And then the Spirit uh, brought out a very secret sin in his life. And so in front of uh, 1,500 plus huge crowd, he began saying, I have a confession to make. He said, a year ago, my best friend, as he was, l laying w as he was dying, he told me, please, Look after my finance. My wife is not good with money. I want you to sell my property, uh, uh, bring in the inventory, and then I want you to hand over the money to my wife, please. And so Kilsanjo says that this is what I did. But, but, I kept $100 from the total amount. Now, how much is $100 then? Uh, James Gale, I told you, his annual uh, support amount was $500. So I would imagine $100 would be at least uh, two months' salary, something like that. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a significant amount. Uh, and he said, in front of 1,500 people, he said, here I stand, and uh, for, the, for the very first time, I'm confessing that I have stolen $100 from my dying friend. And I confess his sins before God and before you. Wow. That just, just brought total silence. And then, amazing thing is that it, just, it was like do domino effect. Another guy gets up and repents. And re another woman gets up and repents. It just went on and on until 2 o'clock in the morning. So... This is Kilsanju uh, and his, his, his children. So more confessions came. For example, a, na a national leader, he stood up and said, I confess to God this sin of hatred in me. I really hated this missionary. And now I ask God for forgiveness. And he was just crying and crying. Another guy, another um, a woman uh, says, uh, during the Sino-Japanese War, about 10 uh, years be uh, before, uh, uh, more than 10 years, 12 years before, uh, I was running away from the Japanese. I was holding my baby in my arm, but I could not run fast. 
And so I, I hit the tree or I, I made my, as I was run, running, I made my baby hit the tree trunk and, my, and my, my baby died. And so I could run much more freely. This guilt, she was overcome by this guilt and she confessed her sin. I'm just giving you some examples. Uh, a woman stood up. Can you imagine this? Stood up and said, uh, went up to her husband and said, I want you to forgive me because I have been seeing another man and that man is this man. Like just, just unbelievable things were happening. Uh, the police came in. Why? Because they wanted to arrest people who stole things. And then the result was that police also repented of their sins and accepted Christ. So things like this were happening beyond their an, uh, expectation. Uh, last night, the meeting at Chang Dae-hyun Church was the first of its kind to experience the real power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We read about the revivals in Wales and in India, but the work of the Holy Spirit at Chang Dae-hyun Church will surpass any revivals we read. That's missionary, American missionary George McCune uh, when he was reporting um, to... Um, on the, notice the date, January 15th, the, day, the last day of the revival. He wrote that letter and sent it to his uh, 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 mission, mission headquarters uh, secretary in New York, uh, Dr. Brown. He said, this is what I observed tonight. Since the days of the apostles, there is no other event greater than this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Repenting their sins, men and women drop, dropped in consciousness. The whole city seems to be in, mor in mourning as if for the dead. They were mourning over their sins. They could not hold back. Now, important thing uh, that is that this revival did not just end in this sensational ev uh, uh, experience as an event and then sort of ended there. No, it had a very si significant follow-up called One Million Souls for Christ movement. Uh, at the time in Korea, um, the entire population was around 12 million, maybe a little bit more. Uh, and, and, and church leaders were praying that, well, let's ride on this wave and let's pray that God will bring in one million souls for Christ. And so there were massive rallies and preaching points across all nations. Um, and this is what a lot of Koreans practiced because they were too poor to give money they, just, they ended up giving days to, to the Lord. Days that were entirely devoted for evangelism. So, for example, I would uh, go up to the pastor and say, I give 10 days. That means uh, I stop working in the field, and for 10 days I go out and I evangelize. So that's what they mean by the offering of preaching days. And then they also distributed the gospel tracts. And so over 1 million gospel according to Luke, uh, uh, tracks were distributed during this uh, campaign. Now, uh, are you familiar with Jonathan Goforth, the first Canadian missionary to China, uh, graduate of Knox College? He so happened to be in Pyongyang in 1907. Uh, I don't know why he was visiting there, and he experienced this firsthand. And so he wrote the account called 
when the spirit, Spirit's fire swept Korea. He wrote this in 1943, so many years later he, he was uh, rec recollect, uh, recollecting, recollecting and, and, and wrote. And this is what he said. If revival is being withheld from us, it is because some idol remains still enthroned because we still insist in placing our reliance in human schemes. And that's what he wrote. Uh, this uh, uh, Pyongyang revival in 1907 forever changed Jonathan Goforth uh, because uh, until that time he was church planter. Uh, he was Bible teacher in the church. But when he experienced 1907 revival, he became a revivalist. He was now, from this point on, he was traveling all over China and preaching the gospel. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes he would be so moved, moved by the Spirit that he would preach for eight hours straight. <laughs> and so where he was working, which was um, uh, northern China called Manchuria, the following year, 1908, he himself witnesses huge revival in Manchuria. What are the results of 1907 revival? Well, I, like I said, uh, the movement started in 1909, one million souls for Christ. And I'm also very uh, proud to inform you that the man, the missionary who chaired this movement was from Toronto, James Gale, the guy who uh, translated the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he was uh, sort of like the Billy Graham campaign uh, chairman uh, at that time. And uh, this 1907 revival really sent, sent out this message that Christianity is the hope of our people. Not China, not Japan, but Christianity. We may be losing the nation, but we are gaining the kingdom. And so uh, the preachers were preaching holy living. Uh, stop drinking, stop smoking, stop gambling. Stop having two or more wives. They were listening to the preachers. So Pyongyang was called the Jerusalem of Orient. Why? Because it was so sanctified by this revival. And this revival was spread throughout the Korean Peninsula. You see this picture uh, of so many people impacted by this revival. And here is the first seven Presbyterian ministers ordained in 1907. So the revival took place in uh, January, and the ordination took place a few months later. And uh, Kil Sun-ju is a guy in the on the front row, uh, from the right, second. Uh, the guy with glasses, that's Kil Sun-ju. Uh, he is considered to be the father of the Korean church. And... Uh, uh, it's just an uh, uh, amazing, amazing a set of events took place in 1907. Now, Kil Sun-ju taught the Korean church two things in the area of prayer. First, early prayer meetings. And that's why if you go to any, any Korean church in Toronto, they have uh, prayer meetings in, in the morning every day. Some churches, uh, they meet earlier, but other churches, at least 6 o'clock, they come and they, they pray. Yeah. Now, this tradition is dwindling now. So in our church, uh, just a handful of people still 
more than a handful, maybe 50, 60 people every morning come and pray. Uh, but in Korea, oh, you go to like Myeongsong Presbyterian Church, and uh, you can expect upwards of 10,000 people coming to pray every morning, not because it's a special event. It's just a way of life. And this guy is totally responsible for that. So Korean church, you know, is, is a praying church. And also he introduced Friday midnight prayers. Again, uh, we had to um, scale back. Uh, but the idea back then was it's an overnight prayer. Friday night, you come to church, you pray through the night. Yeah. And when you pray through the night, uh, Koreans tend to pray in loud voice all at once. Again, he is responsible for that kind of Korean-style prayer called Tongsong Kido. Yeah. So you can see Gilsonju had tremendous impact in Korean Christianity. Uh, what is the heart and soul of the Pyongyang revival? Um, you saw the study of God's word at the very center and prayer and spirit-led repentance Honesty and courage to confess sins in public. Genuine interest in lost souls. What about its impact on the Korean society? Um, you know, uh, this because this was uh, such a nationwide in scale that it was not just churches that were touched. The whole, whole society was being touched. And the Christians, they decided that uh, even though we are losing our country to Japan, we need to educate our next generation. So Christians, they all uh, contributed towards building schools. Prohibition of smoking, drinking, and gambling uh, from idol worship. And women's rights, uh, change in worldview, restoration of marriage. That is, those who had concubines, they were now trying to uh, come to, come to uh, an end. Explosive church growth. I will show you the chart shortly. And Christ uh, as our only hope uh, in the midst of national crisis, that is the annexation. So Christians were making a real solid impact in society. And I think this is the most important point that 1907 revival uh, in many ways uh, made Christianity no longer a foreign religion. You know, uh, in mission studies, we hear about contextualization, and uh, I think it's contextualization at its best. Uh, because after 1907, this revival, Koreans had no problem accepting Christianity as their own religion rather than a religion that a Westerner brought in. If you go to Thailand today, Thai people still, uh, they are very, very difficult to evangelize because for them, Christianity is a Western religion, right? And they say, we have a very good Buddhism here. Why do we need Western religion? But here in Korea, notice uh, they were looking to China for leadership and for inspiration, but China, Qing Dynasty was going down and they saw China losing battle in, over Japan. So they realized that that was not the answer. And then um, Japan came, and uh, they looked to Christianity as solid hope. 
and uh, not necessarily a Western invasion. Now, uh, I think this is an important point to develop. If you look at uh, colonial days at that time, all the countries in Asia, they were all, more or less, they were all colonized by Western powers. Indonesia by Dutch, Philippines by Spain, Spain and then later America, Americans. Uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos by French, right? China, Hong Kong by British, India by British, Burma by British. Thailand were not colonized because the British and the French wanted to set up a buffer zone, right? Uh, but look at Korea. It was the only country colonized by non-Western power, Japan. And it did a lot of good to Koreans in terms of accepting Christianity as, a as not as a Western religion, but a, a religion that can really save us. So there was no, no necessary um, um, uh, repulsion against Christianity because it came in the hands of the invaders. Uh, are you with me on this? Yeah, very important point. Because they talk about three M's, right? They talk about uh, merchants and then, uh, and then milit military, followed by missionary, right? That, that's what happened in China. And so, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with 1900, the year 1900, the Boxer Rising. A lot of Westerners were killed by Chinese, mad, angry Chinese, because they said enough and enough of Western uh, colonization. Well, in Korea, they were fighting against Japanese and Japanese Shintoism, not necessarily Western Christianity. And that's a huge plus. So Christianity is no longer a foreign religion. This religion is for us. And this God is our God. So if you look at schools in Pyongyang, uh, you can see uh, from 1905 to 1907, well, already things were on the increase, but uh, you can see uh, people were just getting becoming aware, more and more aware. If you look at the um, church growth, uh, by this one denomination, Northern Methodist Church. Uh, 1906, full membership was 18,000. 1907, 39,000, over 200% increase because that revival took place in the January of 1907. They had the whole year went out and evangelized. Pre look at the pre Presbyterian Church. Um, the number just kept growing and growing and growing. Almost, um, almost like, I don't know what percentage you would apply, but um, unbelievable, unbelievable. So 1910 marks the annexation by Japan. So there were 120,000 Presbyterian me uh, members in Korea, 120,000. So that's 25 years after uh, the first Presbyterian missionary, there were 120,000 Presbyterians. You compare that to uh, Kyrgyzstan, which is a Central Asian country that, uh, you know, our church adopted this unreached people group, and it's been over 20 years. Uh, their total number of believers out of 3.5 million, still less than 5,000 believers. Not just Presbyterian, but just total. Yeah. That's how hard it is. But look at this, just one Presbyterian denomination. Yeah. 
So I now conclude my presentation uh, with this uh, uh, statement that the Pyongyang revival, its impact on Kore Korean Christianity, well, three things. Number one, it made the Korean church praying church, always seeking that kind of revival. Also made the church evangelizing church. Uh, first, evangelizing its own people, but more so sending missionaries out all around the world. And third, persevering church, because uh, church grew, revival took place at the darkest moment in nation's history. And so uh, this revival re reminds the church to persevere and continue to have hope in God. Okay, so I spoke a little, little longer than I anticipated. So I will now open up for questions, please. Yes. I thought I explained that to you by saying about three M's. Do you understand that concept of three M's? Yes. Yeah. So China struggled with this three M the whole time. And you know, uh, China, the church, really began to explode uh, af after, after missionaries all went home and the communists took over, <laughs> underground churches. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I did fi find a passage in the book of Acts when apostles and the disciples all prayed loud at once. So I don't think it's uniquely uh, Korean tradition. Uh, the, the early church did that. And I cannot, I don't have the Bible with me now, but I'm sure you can find it. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is the reference. It seems very disorderly uh, because everybody is speaking out as if you listen to my prayer. <laughs> Nobody's listening to their prayer because if you did, you wouldn't pray your own prayer. Yeah. Or the, the, the leader will say, now let's all pray together all at once. That's right. Uh, that's right. The last two nights. Yes. Yeah. And yes. For at least 10 years, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Resulting in over a million believers. Yeah. Yes. Pyongyang. Uh, I don't have the exact. Uh, but I would say around maybe hundred thousand people, yeah, maybe up, maybe plus minus, yeah. Yes. Definitely, Christians. The more Christians who are located in North. 
Korea before the war than South, definitely. And you know, um, uh, this uh, even this church called Youngnak is uh, uh, there is a Youngnak church in Korea that's ten times bigger than this church. That was started by North Korean refugees, Christians that came from North Korea to Seoul, and then some of them migrated to United States, went to Los Angeles, and they started Youngnak Church there as well. Yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah. So, and in our church uh, at in Toronto Youngnak, we have a lot of. Uh, uh, strong believers whose roots are found in North Korea. Korea. Uh, they talk about uh, when they were young, they would go to these churches. Yeah. Uh, and I, we just, a uh, couple of years ago, we did a funeral for one uh, lady who was over 100 years old. Uh, she was baptized by Kilsonju. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think, but we are st- but still maintaining the form of it, but the co- content or the spirit is st- st- very weak now. Yes, uh, youth and also people in their thirties and forties as well. Yeah, so people that come out to early morning prayer here are in their fifties and sixties uh, or seventies. Uh, but on weekends, we have some young people too, uh, youth groups, some come out, uh, some of our uh, English-speaking uh, members come out as well. Yeah. Yes? Uh, at that time, you mean, or I, I, I'm, I don't know, but I think the spirit that really brought these things out, out in open, yeah, it was really the work of the spirit. Yeah. But it all started with, like I said, um, a, a Canadian missionary, who the spirit convicted him of his pride, and and it, that's all. Uh, it, it all started. Maybe perhaps the last question, anybody? Yeah. Well, is this uh, new stuff to you, or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you have heard about the Pyongyang revival, 1907? Not, not quite. Yeah. Yes. Today, I know there there is a mission group that secretly engages in the underground churches in North North Korea, and they estimate that there are seventy thousand believers in North Korea, uh, but that's hard to verify. Yeah, but there are there are definitely yeah, and especially in the last few years, many in the last ten twenty years, many have. Um, uh, ran for for food in in in, nor- in China and then they were uh, converted they were discipled and then they 
came back to North Korea. And some of them are like that, uh, the, the underground church members. But if you are found out, uh, you, go to, you go to prison. Yeah. Very, very dangerous. So Pyongyang, uh, for many Koreans, knowing what happened in 1907 in Pyongyang, it's really a heartache knowing what is going on in Pyongyang today. It, it was such a sacred place where the spirit worked. And today, it's almost like that uh, passage in the Bible. Uh, um, uh, um, yeah, yeah, what is, say that again. Yeah, it's talking about uh, during the intertestamental period when they sacrificed the pig in, in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. That's that's what's going on right now. Yeah. So, I think uh, I think I'll close here. So, thank you very much for coming. And can I close in prayer then? Yes. Lord, we just want to lift up North Korea and Pyongyang before you. Lord, once there was such a powerful moving of the spirit in that area, but today it's under dictatorship. It's under so, such a godless state. Lord, we pray for your mercy upon that area. And uh, we also pray that once again, that great revival will come about in North Korea as well as where we work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you.